Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take my words in all their imperfection and that you would use them to unfold the written word and so lead us to the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, for it is in his name we ask it. Amen. Uh, Dick McLennan is an Australian missionary and uh, he spent many years trying to reach uh, remote tribes people in the Omo River Valley in Ethiopia and he wrote about his experiences in a book called Warriors of Ethiopia and on uh, one occasion he and another missionary arrived uh, in a remote village that, uh, that had never heard the gospel and they, they go around speaking to different individuals about Jesus. And they come across one woman uh, on the edge of the village and she's, she's busy moulding a clay pot. Uh, she continues with her pottery as they explain the gospel to her. How God loved the world so much that he sent his son that people might know him. And uh, the woman replied, well, that's wonderful, but is it true? And uh, Dick McLennan replied, yes, it's true. And he continued how he not only came into the world, but he died on a cross that people might be forgiven. And she said, wow, that's wonderful, but is it true? And uh, he said, yes, it is true. And he not only came and died, but he rose again and can be known today. That's wonderful, she said. But is it true? And he said, yes, it is true. And the woman said, okay, well, I believe it's true. But if it is true, how come no one has ever told us this before? And Dick McLennan says that at that moment his eyes filled with tears of shame and regret. Jesus came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He rose again. He's alive and can be known today. All of that happened 2,000 years ago, and yet today, 2,000 years later, there are multitudes around the world who've never heard the name of Christ, and there are multitudes, dare I say it, in South Africa today, who've heard the name of Jesus but have absolutely no idea about the true meaning of the Christian gospel. And friends, that ought to bring tears to our eyes, but it also ought to bring resolve to our hearts and wills to go on and get on with sharing the gospel. And I hope very much that Revelation 10 and 11 are going to have that effect on us this morning. Uh, that is the purpose, I think, of these two great chapters. We're going to be focusing mainly on chapter 11, uh, with just a brief reference to chapter 10 as we go along. Now, at one level... Uh, chapter 11 is actually rather more straightforward than some of the material we've seen in the rest of the book. On the surface, it is a fairly simple story. Think about it. It's about two preachers who go out into the world, it says, for three and a half years, proclaiming the word of God, and we're told that they have astonishing, miraculous power. That's Act 1. Act 2, these preachers are killed by a beast that comes up from the abyss. Uh, their bodies are left in the street of a great city and the inhabitants gloat over their dead bodies. Act 2. Act 3, God raises them, they ascend into heaven and uh, after they've left the earth, there's a terrible earthquake. 
A tenth of the city is destroyed. 7,000 people are killed. Uh, Those who remain are terrified and give glory to God. The story, when you tell it like that, is simple enough. What on earth does it mean? Well, we certainly should not read it literally. Uh, Some people do read it like that, and so they're waiting for these two terrific preachers. They're wondering, who on earth are they? Uh, Are they, is it Billy Graham? Uh, John Piper? They're expecting two particular preachers to emerge and these events to happen exactly as they're recorded in Revelation chapter 11. So they read it as a literal account of future history. Now, I don't think that's right. Because, you see, Revelation is a particular type of writing that uses visual imagery to get its message across. It's kind of a comic in words. And we've already seen uh, that point in the various visual images we've come across so far. So, for example, we've seen that there's a, a throne in heaven, which is a very profound but perfectly clear image of the authority of God. Then we saw the Lamb who was slain. Well, that's not difficult. That's obviously the Lord Jesus Christ who died as a sacrifice that our sins could be forgiven. And then we saw the scroll with seven seals revealing the the purposes of God until the end of time. And one by one, those seals, those seven seals on the scroll were opened and you remember that they revealed the suffering that's going to take place in the world until Jesus Christ returns, but also the absolute security of God's people through the suffering. And then in chapter 7, if you remember, we had a preview of the end of time with all of God's people safe in his presence. And then last week, we began, if you remember, another sequence of sevens with the seven trumpets, describing exactly the same period of history, the last days. And I wonder if you've got this in your uh, brainstorming session, but the first six trumpets are alarm calls, aren't they? They are wake-up calls from God. Uh, If you were taking notes, you'll remember there was the wake-up call of natural disasters, uh, there was the wake-up call of pain, and there was the wake-up call of death. Now, they are all warnings that one day the seventh trumpet will sound, announcing the end of human history and the judgment to come. But very interestingly, this week in chapters 10 and 11, there is a delay between the sixth trumpet and the seventh. And what we have here is a different perspective, or if you like, a different camera angle on the same period of history. And here, the focus is on the people of God. You see, the question is, why the delay before the seventh trumpet? I mean, why doesn't Jesus just come now and bring judgment and put everything right? Why the delay? Part of the answer is because God is patient. He's very, very loving. He wants more people to have a chance to repent. That is the point of the trumpets. They are designed to lead people 
to repentance as they discover the world is not as, they, as, not as it should be. And God gives that message to repent, not only through the trumpets, but in our passage this morning, through the testimony of the church. That is the theme of chapter 11. Uh, These two witnesses are not specific individuals. They represent the entire people of God. Why two of them? Well, it may be because Jesus sent out his disciples two by two, that's one possibility. Or perhaps, and I think this is more likely, that under Jewish law, the testimony of one person in a court of law wasn't enough. To prove the truth, there had to be two witnesses. You'll notice in verse 4 of the chapter that they're described as two lampstands. And uh, if you can remember back to chapter 1... The lampstand in Revelation is a symbol of the church. Do you remember? Chapter 1, Jesus was walking among the lampstands. That means he's walking among the churches. So here we have the, the whole people of God in the last days on mission. Now, that means, dear friends, that chapter 11 includes us. Because we are God's witnesses. Now, we're not all going to be uh, Billy Graham's or John Piper's standing up in front of vast crowds proclaiming the gospel. But corporately, together, this is our responsibility. We each have different gifts, we each have different roles, but we have a joint responsibility to take the good news of Jesus to all nations so that they can hear the testimony of the gospel and, God willing, Repent, But it's tough. It was extremely tough for the first readers of John's book. They were facing great persecution from outside the church and tremendous pressures from within the church to compromise and it will be tough for us as well. Like them, we are going to be tempted to compromise the message or even to blend in with the surrounding culture or worse still, keep silent. Well, Revelation 10 and 11 are designed to spur us on in this tremendous task to be God's witnesses in the last days. Uh, These two chapters are essentially a parable and uh, I hope and trust that the truth in this parable will encourage us in the task God has given to us. Notice with me three P's in the text. P number one, power. Uh, Chapter 10 features a very impressive giant-sized angel uh, with one foot on the land, one foot on the sea. Uh, He is a picture of God's authority over the entire universe. Uh, And in the name of God, he gives a scroll to John. Uh, The scroll is the word of God, it's the gospel... And the point is, you see, that John then is not inventing his own message. He's a man under authority who's received a message from God and he's got to go and preach it to the nations. Now, what is true of John in chapter 10 is true of every Christian in chapter 11. 
So, chapter 11, verse 3. Can we all see verse 3 of chapter 11 in our Bibles? And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, don't worry about the number of days for a moment. We'll come back to it. But the witnesses are commissioned by God and they're given a message from God to proclaim. And what we have in chapter 11 is is a kind of collage of different images. I don't know whether you ever made a collage at school, cutting out images from different magazines and sticking them up to make a picture. That's what we've got in chapter 11. These images bring to mind the great prophets of the Old Testament who all received important messages from God. And chapter 11, you see, is giving us the true picture of what's happening in the Church of Jesus Christ in the last days. It's the Church, now listen to this, with authority and power from God. Now we're not to read it literally. So, for example, verse 5 says, If anyone tries to harm the witnesses, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Now, I hope you realise that it's not saying that if someone doesn't believe the sermon on Sunday, that fire sort of somehow comes out from the the pulpit and they get fried. It's not saying that. Uh, We're not meant to understand that it's going to happen literally in that way. Because, you see, what John is doing is he's painting a picture using Old Testament colours. And here what we have is a Jeremiah image. It comes from Jeremiah 5, you don't need to look it up, where the prophet is told by God that when people dismiss his message, for those people, God's word will not bring life. Rather, it will bring a fire that consumes them. It's saying that God's word does bring life to those who repent, but it brings judgment on those who hear it but don't repent. And if you glance to verse 6, you'll see that what John has written brings there to mind Elijah and Moses, two of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. Elijah, you remember, Uh, received power to shut the heavens so it didn't rain for three years and Moses had power to turn the waters in Egypt to blood. Now in exactly the same way the church has authority from God to judge the world if its message is rejected. Now that is not to say that you or I have any personal power or authority to do that. It's it's not to go to our heads because the passage says we're wearing sackcloth and sackcloth signifies repentance. And so when we preach the gospel we speak as those who mourn our own sin, we recognise our own sin, we're sorry for our own sin. And that is to be our attitude as we look ahead to the certain judgement of Almighty God and we call on people to repent of sin. There's to be no personal pride or arrogance in our preaching. 
And you see, what John is writing about here is actually what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 18, verse 18. Listen to this. He said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You see, what he was doing was talking about the authority of all God's people to preach the gospel and to announce that those who respond with faith are right with God for all eternity. And those who reject the gospel, well, that has eternal consequences. Judgment. There is tremendous power and authority in our witness. One senior Christian leader in the UK um, has a rather vivid testimony that makes the point quite well. He was a student at Oxford University in the 1960s and he was invited to a Christian meeting in the Union debating chamber. And uh, in the debating chamber there are two doors. Uh, If you're saying yes to the motion that's being debated you go out through the yes door and if you're saying no you go out through the, the other one. And the speaker said at one point in his talk no one will leave this building neutral before God. He said, I'm proclaiming the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died so that anyone who trusts in him can be forgiven. And if you repent, you are saying yes to God. But if you don't say yes to God, you are saying no, whether you actually speak the word or not. There is no one neutral you will all go out through one of those two doors. And uh, that's when this man realised that he needed to repent and he traces his conversion back to that particular evening. The reality is that those who were resisting the message of the speaker that night were under God's judgement unless they did repent. Now that's what's being spoken about here, power. But second P in the passage, persecution. The point is, we are not to have false expectations. Uh, When I was fairly newly converted, there was a great deal of, I suppose what you might call, triumphalism in Christian circles. Um, And I remember one of the songs that we sang in church went like this. Now is the time to march, uh, march upon the land. Into our hands he'll give the ground we claim. And uh, the impression was given that uh, if only we would claim the ground for Jesus Christ, there'd be the most marvellous revival and thousands of people would get converted. But of course it's not as easy as that, is it? Revelation 11 is extremely clear and it encourages more sober expectations. You'll notice in verse 3, Let's have a look at verse 3. That these two witnesses prophesy for 1,260 days. What on earth does that mean? Well, I hope you know by now that in Revelation, numbers are symbolic. So where on earth does that number come from? Well, 1,260 days is a reference to one of the prophecies in the book of Daniel. Daniel says that there's going to be a time of great tribulation in the future 
for the people of God. And he says it's going to last for a time, times, and half a time. And uh, the scholars say that if a time stands for a year, and times stands for two years, and half a time stands for half a year, that makes three and a half years. And assuming a month of 30 days, well, not all months are 30 days, but assuming a month of 30 days, that is 1,260 days, or 42 months. Now that is the period, isn't it, mentioned in verse 2. Were we all reading verse 2 carefully? Let's remind ourselves what's in verse 2. Because in verse 2, the Gentiles, the enemies of God, trample the holy city. And that is the time, you see, when the world as a whole does not bow its knee to God. In fact, the majority are in opposition to God and they invade his temple. Now, the big point to take away is this, that the time of witnessing, the time of preaching the gospel, is exactly the same as the time of suffering and tribulation. These two things are happening side by side at the same time throughout the last days, which is, as I'm sure you remember from last week, the whole period between the ascension of the Lord Jesus and his return. It is a time of proclamation. We are to be his witnesses, taking the gospel out. But throughout that period, we are to expect opposition and persecution. So in chapter 10, when John receives the scroll, the gospel, this is explaining what I've just said, what does he do? Somebody tell me with a scroll. He eats it. That's a repeat of what Ezekiel did in the Old Testament. He ate the revelation of God and it was sweet in his mouth. It's a wonderful message. But then as John ingests it, it turns sour in his stomach. Why? Well, because not everybody thinks it's wonderful. There are many people who hate it. As Paul says in... uh, 2 Corinthians, do you remember this? He says, as we proclaim the gospel of Christ, for some, we are the aroma of life, sweet-smelling. They love the message, but for others we bring the stench of death because they actually can't stand it. Some of you know that, I'm sure, to be true in your own experience, don't you? I think for a very short time, the newly converted Christian thinks that uh, evangelism is a bit of a breeze, or rather easy, really. Uh, The new convert is excited about the message, he knows it's wonderful, and he immediately invites his friends to church or to a Christian meeting, and maybe some of them get converted, and he thinks, wow, I don't know what the fuss is, it's going to be terribly straightforward. But it's not long, is it, before we invite somebody, and the, the mere invitation produces a response of anger or even hatred. The gospel, you see, divides, doesn't it? There will be opposition to a greater or a lesser extent. Sometimes it will be to a greater extent. So look with me at verses 7 to 10. 
because these two witnesses end up being killed. Now remember, will you, that the two witnesses represent the church. So in verses 7 to 10, the idea is that the church will sometimes look as if it's dead. Some of you know that the the word witness here could equally well be translated martyr because it's the same word in the Greek. And uh, there are times, aren't there, when it does look as if the church really has died. And of course, in addition to that, there have been many, many times in history when Christians have been killed for their faith. There are some scholars, um, good men, studying Revelation who believe that just before the end of time there's going to be a kind of spike uh, in the suffering of the people of God. And I think that's quite likely because there are other places in the Bible that speak about the time of the Antichrist and then there's that man of lawlessness, isn't there, in 2 Thessalonians and we'll get to him eventually. Times when... um, great lawlessness and suffering. But I don't think we're meant to read it over literally. Because this is going to be happening throughout the ages. There will be times when Christians die for their faith. There are times when Christian communities look as if they're dead. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? And the world gloats about that. The world here is described in verse 8 as the great city with three images. It's figuratively called Sodom and Egypt and then that little curious phrase, the place where also their Lord was crucified. Again, that's another collage, isn't it? It's a collage of different images of hostility towards God. Sodom stands for gross immorality. Egypt stands for extreme persecution. You remember how the children of Israel were persecuted. And Jerusalem, where Jesus died, stands for the persistent rejection of the prophets of God and ultimately, of course, the Son of God. And the people of the world gloat over the apparently dead body of the church. The message here is don't be surprised. Don't be surprised by this. There's power, there's persecution. But if we shouldn't be over optimistic, we shouldn't be overly pessimistic either. And that brings us to our third P protection. Chapter 11 begins with that theme in verse 1. I was given a reed like a measuring rod, says John, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there. So John, as it were, takes out his spiritual tape measure and he goes along to the temple. Now again, friends, this is symbolic because by the time John was writing, the temple had long been destroyed by the Romans. It was destroyed back in 70 AD. So this is symbolic And in the New Testament, the temple is the people of God. Where does God live? 
Well, in the Old Testament, you would have said, well, he lives in the temple at Jerusalem, of course. Where does God live now that the temple has been destroyed? Answer, he lives in his temple, the church. So individually, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, says Paul, 1 Corinthians 6. Corporately, we are the temple of God. And here is John pictured measuring the temple. And the image comes from Ezekiel. What does it mean? Well, some of you know, when you buy a new house, one of the first things you do is you go around with a tape measure. Because you want to know whether Granny's old sofa is going to fit in the living room or whether you've got a wall that's big enough for your massive smart TV. Measuring is a way of saying, I've got plans for this house. That is the idea here. God knows every section of his temple intimately. He owns it, he's committed to it, he's got plans for it. It is actually the same thought we had a few weeks ago in chapter 7, when we saw that God's people were sealed. And here it's a picture, this measuring is a picture of the safety of the church. God knows us. He's measured us. He's got plans for us. The Gentiles might have invaded the outer court, but the people of God are in the inner sanctuary. They are known, they are measured, and they are protected. Now, of course, we're not immune from suffering. We're not immune from death. But we are safe doesn't always look like it. Uh, Those dead bodies of the two witnesses were being gloated over by the world. They didn't look particularly safe. It looks as though they've lost the battle. And people were laughing, saying, you know, fancy believing all that nonsense. But they are absolutely safe. That's the message. Because, notice this, after three and a half days, which is a very, very short time, isn't it, compared to the three and a half years when there's suffering as we preach. After three and a half days, they are raised and ascend into the presence of God. It's the final image in the collage in which the church is compared to Jeremiah, compared to Ezekiel, compared to Moses, compared even to Jesus, who died and rose again. Perfect protection. John Payton was a great missionary in the 19th century. He began his ministry work in the the slums of, of Glasgow, but then he felt that God was calling him to go to the New Hebrides in the Pacific, Uh, The New Hebrides are 25 islands in the middle of nowhere, uh, known today as Vanuatu. And everyone said, don't go. Uh, His pastor said, don't go. You know, you've got an absolutely terrific ministry here in Glasgow. Uh, You know, what's to say that anything significant is going to happen all the way over there? People might ignore you completely. Uh, It will be extremely dangerous. I mean, just think of all the diseases. And you're going to be miles away from medical help. And as people were 
continuing to try to persuade him not to go, an elderly man stood up in the congregation and he said, what about the cannibals? You're going to be killed and eaten. And very calmly, and I think rather bravely, John Payton replied and said, Sir, you are old, and it won't be long before you are in the grave and worms will devour your body. But if the cannibals devour mine, what does it matter? Because on the resurrection day it will be absolutely perfect in Christ, just as yours will be. So what does it matter, actually? whether my body is devoured by worms or by cannibals. Because the future's not in doubt. We're all going to be raised and ascended. John Payton was absolutely convinced of God's promise about the future that a multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation and language will be in heaven forever with Jesus. So in 1858 he went. His suffering was extraordinary, off the scale really. His first wife died, he had 11 children, five of them died, and he and the family endured 40 years of deprivation, disease and danger. But you see, John Payton walked the way of the cross, and in that way of the cross, as he continued as a living testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ, there was the most remarkable fruit. And so today, from a standing start of no Christians in Vanuatu in 1858, 91% of the population worship Christ. 91%. Now, we're not John Payton, and we may not be called to suffer in quite the way that he did, but we are called to be witnesses for Christ in enemy territory. Have you realised that yet? And you see, we do it confidently, knowing that God is with us, that he has plans for us, he's measured us, and ultimately he's going to bring in a terrific harvest because of our testimony. And when the seventh trumpet sounds... Well, hopefully, God willing, going to look at this more closely next week. But let's have a quick sneak preview. Verse 15. Have a look at verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Friends, this is where history is going. The seventh trumpet will sound. Christ will reign, and his people will reign with him. 
But all those who have persisted in rebellion against the rule of Christ will be destroyed. Now, that is the message. And it's our responsibility to get that message out. And I can't think of a better time than Christmas for us to be doing that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the tremendous privilege of getting the good news of Jesus out into the world. Forgive us for the many, many times when we have kept quiet for fear of rejection and opposition. Help us to remember that you have given us divine power so that as we proclaim the message, those appointed for eternal life will believe. And help us to remember that even if we are mocked or scorned or even killed, that no one and nothing can snatch us out of your loving hand. And when the last trumpet sounds, we will be with you and your people forever in a perfect new world. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.